Good morning, everyone. Uh, just in case you don't know me, my name's Rob. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, just a little announcement that we didn't inform anyone. The air conditioner's fixed. Uh, that's right. Everybody okay? I, I was freezing when I walked in the room this morning, so uh, hopefully it's warmed up just a little bit. Um, believe it or not, when I was in high school, I was actually a pretty athletic guy. I know. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> there is still muscle underneath all of this other stuff, and it's just crying to be used right now. The sport that I ate, breathed, and slept was swimming. If you know anything about swimming, you know that it's a grueling sport. You, you burn more calories in a single year of swimming than you can possibly eat. I was looking back through the archives, I found one of my old pictures, and um, I tell you, I was pretty good, pretty good. Now, because swimming is a sport of determination and focus, swimmers fail in their head first. They drop back when the lactic acid builds up in their muscle, and they're swimming along, and they look over to the right and to the left, and they see someone pulling ahead of them. Knowing that the nature of this sport is mental, our coach used to make us race a drill that was meant to build grit, determination, and focus. The drill was called the gauntlet. The gauntlet. The gauntlet pitted 20 cold-blooded boys with kickboards in their hands against one lone swimmer in the middle lane. His challenge was to swim 100 yards butterfly, the fiends with the boards, their task was to make him quit, and they could use any means that they wanted to. They could push wake at him. They could yell discouraging things to him. There was just one rule. You can't touch him. You touch him, and you're the next guy in the middle lane. It was a challenging drill. The chop of the water was disorienting. As you tried to swim, it would throw your stroke off balance. And if you weren't focused, you could easily take in a gulp of water, which, let me tell you, that stops you dread in your tracks if you do that. It was usually by the third lap that your muscles were shot and you were beginning to feel those encouragements to quit. Do you know when most people quit in the gauntlet? Ten yards left to go. With ten yards remaining, the fiends would go into overdrive. They would push as much wake at you as they possibly could. They would intensify the yelling. And more often than not, when swimmers would make it to the last ten yards, they stopped dead in their tracks. Why? I think that they stopped with the prize in sight due to distraction. The temptation to be content with the progress that they had made, the encouragement to quit, the fear of failure were enough to take their eyes off of the prize. Now, I'm sure that you have experienced distraction in your own life. Uh, maybe you want to be a focused person. You want your one life to count. You want to lead where you are, yet the daily grind the encouragement to quit, and the fear of failure can be like relentless waves. That's why I love this chapter in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 6. If you would, please turn your Bibles there with me at this time. 
Um, If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn it to page 401. This is an interesting chapter of the Bible, and it reminds me of why we need to remain focused and determined while we see the job completed. Just to give you a little background, Nehemiah has been building this wall. The wall is virtually complete. There are no more gaps in the wall. It's been constructed. In fact, the text says that the only thing really remaining with the wall is to install the gates of the wall. It's at this time that Nehemiah's enemies go into overdrive. They had been opposing his people and discouraging them, but if you can't get the people, then the next logical thing to do is to go after the leader. And so they pull out all of the stops, and they try to dismantle his leadership so that the the work won't be finished. I think you will find in your own life that the distractions that these enemies pose to Nehemiah are the same distractions that can cause you to lose your focus in your walk with Christ and uh, cause you or prevent you from pursuing the most important thing. So let's begin with distraction number one, opportunities. And we'll see that in verses one through four. The text says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gashem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Gashem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecophirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Let's stop there. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are the names that as we've been making our way through, Nehemiah have come to personify the enemy. They are vicious, they are cruel, They're scoundrels, and they're happy to level any tool in their arsenal in order to get him off of his game. Ridicule, discouragement, military threat, you name it. And now suddenly, they've grown warm towards him. Hecophirim was the halfway point from Samaria and Jerusalem. It was neutral ground. It would require Nehemiah to travel one day's journey from his city to the northwest limits of his territory, and um, that would put him at the bordering areas of Samaria and Ashdod, which uh, were both regions that were hostile to the Jewish people. The plan didn't smell right. This was not a plan for peace. It was a plot for murder. Now, you have to understand that the pull of distracting opportunities can be strong indeed. What's the distraction here? It has something to do with peace. Nehemiah, if you come up here, we will offer you peace. In fact, you can just imagine the headlines of the local Samaritan Daily Sun article. The title would read something like this, Nehemiah says no to oh no. Samaritan officials have disclosed, and here's the article, that Nehemiah, governor of Judah, has again turned down the offer of Governor Sanballat of Samaria to meet at one of the villages in Ono on the Judah-Samaria border. 
The proposed conference would include the big four of the areas, Geshem, leader of the Arabs, Tobiah, leader of the Ammonites, Sanballat, and Nehemiah. Sanballat issued a statement today in which he sharply criticized Nehemiah for his repeated refusals to cooperate. He reports that the purpose for such a meeting would be to work on a formula for lasting peace in the region. The Samaritan leader said with evident frustration, this is the fourth time Nehemiah has turned down my invitation to meet and discuss our mutual concerns. These repeated refusals mean that the responsibility for increasing tensions and any violence that may result rests solely upon Jerusalem. You can just envision it, can't you? Now, Nehemiah's response is beautiful. Look at verse 3. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Four times the enemy presents the opportunity of peace. Four times Nehemiah comes back to them. I love that. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I want you to think about everyone in this life that you know of who has made an impact in the world. Whether they were a good friend, a good parent, a good person in business, whether they had something to do with politics or something to do with ministry. And you are looking at a life that is absolutely focused. You're talking about an individual that knew what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how they were going to go about doing it. They were so consumed with the main thing that they never got distracted by the lesser things. And this is what we see here with Nehemiah. They wouldn't let anything or anyone divert them from that task. Leadership principle number 20. Leaders are focused. They have a clear understanding of what they're about. One author has said this, we were kept from our goal not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. Think of that story in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is just starting his ministry and he has the disciples with him. And there's all kinds of buzz about the ministry. He's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, he's preaching the good news to people. And people are starting to get really excited. In fact, he decides that he's going to sneak off because the press of the crowd is so great, and he goes off to pray. And while he's away, the disciples are being bombarded by people. Where is he? We want to see Jesus. We want to hear more of his teachings. We want to see more of his miracles. And you can start imagining the process that's going on in the disciples' heads. This is great. This is going to be a big deal. We've got to get Jesus back here and push this thing forward. In fact, the text says in verse 37 of Mark 1, everyone's looking for you. You can just see the exclamation points behind that sentence. Jesus' response must have caught them off guard. Because instead of saying in verse 37, yes, let's go ahead, let's press forward, he says, let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also. And you can just imagine the pushback, can't you? Jesus, no! I mean, people are getting saved here. Miracles are happening. They want you to sign a big book deal. Jesus, 
you're going to get speaking gigs, $10,000 a pop. And there's murmurs around that there could be a talk show. And I'm just thinking of an idea here, but this sounds pretty good to me. The, the Nazarene hour of power. What do you think? But Jesus won't come off his wall. He says, no. We must leave here. I need to preach elsewhere. This is why I came. Clarity. Focus. Just imagine if Jesus had taken that advice. We would not have a global gospel today. It would have been a localized thing. He would have been a popular figure, potentially, which would not have led to the cross, and there would not be salvation for millions and billions around the world. Have you lost sight of the main thing? Have you grown distracted? Are you pursuing entertainment? or pursuing upward mobility, or pursuing other things. You're, you're placing them in the place of the main thing, which is always to be the place of God's mission. Saying no to good things so that we can say yes to the best. That's what we see here in Nehemiah. Let's think about a second distraction. Distraction number two, rumors. Look with me at verses 5 through 7 in the text. It says, In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It was reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Now just to fill you in on the background here, in Nehemiah's time, letters were either written on papyrus or leather. They were generally rolled up, tied with a string, and then sealed with a piece of clay. That was in order to ensure privacy. So Sanballat's method here is to send this letter open, which would purposely make those contents public. And the rumor is simple. Nehemiah is doing all that is in his power uh, to make a grab for the reins of power, right? He wants to become king. Now, it's been said in that the not-so-nice no, uh, not so thing about a rumor is that you just have to spread the rumor to one vicious gossip, and then it's like a virus. It goes out, and it infects everybody. A couple of things we see here about rumors. I noticed that um, in the text you see in verse 6 this vague uh, source. It is reported among the nations. Uh, generally, with a rumor, an original source is never declared. It's this vague source that adds credence and makes it come across like everybody thinks this way. Surely this is the truth. And Sam Bellad is using this as an intimidation tactic. He's appearing to speak for the majority, and he's also saying that if Nehemiah doesn't come off his wall, then Artaxerxes is going to come down and take over. How do you handle a vicious rumor? Do you go out and uh, make up another one for yourself against them? Kind of fight back? I'd say no. That's a temptation, though, isn't it, to get even? 
Generally speaking, when people engage in the rumor war of getting even back and forth, Nehemiah could have said something about Sanballat, and that would have uh, made him feel vindicated. But that's just like throwing gasoline on the fire, isn't it? One, you don't leave with your integrity preserved. Two, generally when you try to vindicate yourself, it adds more weight to the other rumor because people see you fighting back and forth, back and forth. Another thing that people try to do when rumors happen is maybe they give up. Can you imagine Nehemiah's mindset here? Well, I had it easier in Susa. What am I doing here with these people in Jerusalem that are buying all of this garbage, these lies about me? I could go back there, be the cupbearer again, and things would be just fine. But again, not such a good approach because the work comes to a halt. So how do you handle it? The text offers two insights. Um, Look first at verse 8. He says this, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I would submit to you the principle here is you you simply deny the rumor and you let your character speak for itself. It is one of my favorite lines in this book. Nehemiah couldn't make the rumor go away, but he knew that quitting or getting even were not options. So instead, he calls a spade a spade. Sanballat, you're just making this junk up. I'm going to let my character speak for itself. Listen, if you have a consistent pattern of character in your life, rumors as they hit you are more like pesky mosquitoes than they are like piercing arrows. And that's what we see here in this text. Uh, Look at the leadership principle associated with this. Leaders depend on their character. If you've established a pattern of character in your life, then when things like rumors or defamation of character come, you're strengthened. Think of Proverbs 28.1 when I think of this principle. The proverb says, the, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. That's pretty bold, isn't it, what Nehemiah did there? (laughs) You are inventing them out of your own mind. He sends it right back. He calls a spade a spade. Notice another thing that he does here, verse 9. Verse 9 says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. What does he do? He prays. Prayer. You cannot take your own reputation into your own hands when rumors are happening. Try as you may to control. You cannot control the spread of rumors. You cannot control how people will receive them. You can try, but it's ultimately not in your hands. That is why prayer is such an important aspect of the Christian life. God is ultimately the vindicator of people. He's ultimately the one who is in control. He is the one that sees all, knows all. And that's why prayer is Nehemiah's passion in his pursuit. Time and time again, as he receives opposition, he knows the place to take his concerns and his cares. It's not to one of his other friends. It's to God. 
Distraction three, fear. That's the third change in tactic. Sambalat figures if I can't personally pressure Nehemiah into submitting, then I'm gonna bribe someone on the inside. Look at verse 10. We'll just look at that verse first. When I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now the message must have been meant to intimidate, frighten Nehemiah, to scare him into submission. Uh, Shemaiah is a fellow Jew, and he's obviously a prophetic figure. He is housebound at the time. Many of the commentators suspect that Shemaiah's housebound is a symbolic act of prophecy. Prophets in the Old Testament used to conduct symbolic acts to reinforce the message. So the idea here is you need to be locked up in the temple. And he reinforces the why by two times repeating, for they are coming to kill you. I mean, that's frightening stuff. I'm sure he's a pretty courageous guy, but anyone would be afraid of becoming assassin. I don't know about you, but I like to go to sleep at night and not wake up in the morning, as my good friend Bob Kinsey calls it, with a Sicilian necktie. The purpose of this plot was to cause Nehemiah to make an irrational, fear-based decision. Have you ever made a decision based upon fear? Fear. It can be crippling, can it? You can just imagine this scenario playing out night after night. Nehemiah goes into his room. He blows out the candle. He lays himself down in bed and he's lulling to sleep when suddenly he hears a crash outside. And he immediately pops up out of bed and his heart starts racing because he's wondering if this is the contract killer. Does Nehemiah allow fear to cripple him? I would submit to you that the text says no. Look at his response in verses 11 through 14. But I said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they would give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is a very ingenious plot that we see here in the text. Uh, the priests were the only ones who were allowed to go into the temple of God, so Nehemiah is not a priest. The temptation was by fear to cause him to run into the temple and to defame the law of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, one of the kings of Israel, King Uzziah, disregarded God's law. He entered the temple in his pride, and when the priests confronted him 
in this act, he got angry. It says he outburst in anger towards them, and he was immediately struck with leprosy. So if Nehemiah tried to save himself by entering into the temple, by responding to fear, it would have lost him his honor, possibly lost him his life, and certainly would have lost him his mission. Nehemiah refused to allow fear to force him to make sinful choices. In fact, he is thinking quite clearly. I want you to listen to his thought process. I think it goes something like this. If Shemaiah is asking me to sin to preserve my life, this is obviously not a prophecy. God would never ask a prophet of the Lord to instruct me to sin against him. Shemaiah is a phony. Leadership Principle 22. Leaders do not make fear-based decisions. They make faith-based decisions. Your life is full of uncertainty. I don't care how good you are at planning. I don't care how secure your job is or how physically capable you are. Every single life that has ever been lived is full of uncertainty. We cannot guarantee what tomorrow holds. But we follow a certain God. A God who we can place our trust in, who we, when we experience fear, can turn to and know that he is more than capable. I love Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What does that mean for your life? That's life-changing stuff from the word of God. There's all kinds of fears that will assail you. I think of the fear of loneliness. Say you're a single person and you've been single for quite some time and you're afraid that you're going to be lonely for the rest of your life. And you know what fear does? Fear has a way of inflating situations. The thought process is, well, if I'm alone now, then I'm afraid that I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And then fear causes us to make poor decisions from there. How do you apply the principle of Psalm 56.3? Maybe praying something along these lines. God, my singleness is producing fear. Help me not to be tempted to go outside of your counsel for Christian marriage. I will trust you in this. Or say that you were asked to do something unethical at work. Psalm 56.3. God, I fear to do the right thing because I fear it will cost me my job. However, no job is worth my integrity. I am trusting you with this situation. When we allow God to work in the midst of our fear, he is working to produce growth. Growth is a a pressure type thing. As pressure occurs in your life, that is the, the nutrients and the environment that produces growth, and fear often brings the pressure, doesn't it? God can cause us to grow like weeds if we apply Psalm 56, 3 and 4 to it. 
So far we've noticed that there are three distractions that are presented to Nehemiah, and we're seeing him remain faithful in the midst of it. I would submit to you that Nehemiah is being faithful because Nehemiah is a poor math student. Um, now what do I mean by that? Well, he is demonstrating here that he believes that one is greater than three. And that's really bum math, isn't it? You put that in your uh, third grade math test and you get a big fat red mark on your test. Now while Nehemiah is not a very good math student, I would submit to you that he is a very, very good God student. Look with me at verses 15 and 16 and we'll see what I'm talking about here. The text says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It's an it's, it's amazing story because the math just doesn't add up here. You have a ragtag bunch of exiles, a, a people who have been dismantled entirely as a nation, a leader who was a cupbearer who comes to become a wall builder, a leader who's being assaulted on all sides with opportunities, rumors, fears, and yet clearly one is greater than three. This group has finished the wall in 52 days. I'm no civil engineer. I don't know much about that kind of stuff, but I'm smart enough to know that that is a big deal. It's quick. And they've done the job well. In fact, the text says that the job is finished so quickly that the enemies are left stunned. It says that they fall in their own esteem and they knew that God was behind this. That's right. God. God is the factor that mystifies the math. The God factor always will. You see, when the world looks at the people of God doing the work of God, the math should look a little bit wonky. If they're looking at the church, applying the modern business growth trends, taking the next steps that lead to success, you can just simply discount the work of the church. Well, they're applying the principles that work. It's not that big of a deal. And that is the world looking at the church doing God's work in our way, not God's way. The world doesn't need another example of human strategies. They need to see God disrupt the equation. I think of a little shepherd boy named David. Five-foot-nothing David versus ten-foot-Goliath. Five feet is greater than ten feet with God. Or I think of Elijah who stands against 450 prophets of Baal. The contest is which God can make the, the, uh, living, or the, the sacrifice, uh, fire fall down from the sky and burn up the sacrifice. Elijah stands the contest because he knows that God is the living God. One is greater than 450. God disrupts the equation every single time. People are not supposed to be able to quantify the work of God by natural means. You look back at the Exodus account and Pharaoh's um, priests are trying to reproduce the miracles of Moses. But their tricks and schemes only go so far. Eventually they're forced to say, we can't explain this. 
People will explain the church away unless there is a God dimension about us. Is there a God dimension about your life? Do you want people to look at your life and say, that is God at work, not that is religion at work? I think one of the best compliments that I've received of this church is, I don't know what it is about this place, but it is alive. It is alive. What makes a place alive? Is it the skillfulness of the musicians, the rhetoric of the preacher, the friendliness? Uh, Some of those things might be true, some not, but the only factor that makes a place alive is the God factor. You remove the God factor from the equation, and this place just becomes another social club. It's just another gathering of people. It's not alive. It's not transformative. I'll tell you, I don't want to be a part of a church unless God's there. I want to be a part of a church where people can meet with God, worship, where they come to know God the Son through the gospel message, transformation, and that radically changes their life. It turns it upside down to where people who knew them before are looking at them now and saying, what in the world happened? And they're so compelled by that transformative message that it's all they can do to not run out of this place and go tell people. Mission. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the church that defies the math because I believe in a God who defies the math. As we look at the conclusion of this story, it takes an interesting turn in verses 17 and 19. I ask you to look at that with me. In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah And Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Tobiah proves to be the most insidious character of them all. He's related to the people by marriage. Uh, They have broken the law of God. They have intermarried, and this results in political pressure being placed upon Nehemiah. Now, I ask you a question. Why in the world does Nehemiah end the chapter on this note? I mean, for crying out loud, you built the wall in 52 days, man. Like, end it there. That's the fireworks, Let's just stop the letter, the, the, the story, in fact. Let's just end Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 16. That's it. Move on. Another story. I like a happy ending. But he doesn't. And I think he's making a big point here. The work is never finished. When you have reached one milestone, yes, you are finished, but in a real way, you are just beginning. This concludes Nehemiah's job as wall builder, but he has a much more important responsibility now. He will need to lead where he is to unite this people to be a a pure community for God. Leadership principle number 23. Leaders know that the work is never finished. As you lead where you are, never stop working. Even when you reach a milestone. When you reach a milestone and you stop there, it's called a plateau and it's called a new status quo. And when you reach that new status quo, 
Remember, there's, there's no staying still, right? There's only forward or backward. And the church of Jesus Christ never stops moving until Jesus Christ returns or until the last person has trusted him as Lord and Savior. This can happen in our life, and this is probably the biggest distraction of all. We are lulled into a state of apathy because we believe that the job is done, and now it's time to coast. It happens in marriages. We work, we invest, and then we think we've reached the peak of the mountain, and decline sets in. It happens when we are spiritually investing in the hearts of children. We think that the process is help them to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, um, get them baptized, put them in the church regularly, and then we pull back spiritually from the day to day. Let me just say this. I grew up in the church, and I've watched children grow up in the church. The attack of the enemy does not decrease after those things. It increases They need parents who know that it's finished, but it's just beginning. Or what about the church that has achieved some modicum of success? Church after church has grown and then plateaued. The culture of the church moves from reaching people to keeping people. They believe that it's most about getting concerned, uh, their concerns and needs met, and less about the concerns and needs of the billions who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Some time ago, I had the pleasure of hearing the president of Converge Worldwide, Scott Rideout, cast some vision for this network of churches. It was back in 1998 that Rideout took over as the lead pastor of Sun Valley Community Church in Gilbert, Arizona. I met him a while back. We'd had a sidebar conversation, and he was sharing with me some of the things that can happen in leadership, particularly when you're a younger leader, He said in his first couple of years of ministry at Sun Valley, his church declined by 50%. I mean, just talk about discouragement, distraction. However, God's spirit moves as he chooses, and after some time, Sun Valley began to grow and grow and grow. More and more people were moving into the area. They found Sun Valley to be home. People were sharing their faith. People were coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as the church grew, so did the demands for a bigger building. Scott led several efforts to expand the building. And as one renovation was complete, it was evident that the next renovation was needed. I mean, we were talking about major growth here. Well, during this process of expansion and growth, Scott was confronted by one of his key leaders who said, Scott, when is enough going to be enough for you? Why are you continuing to expand and expand? What is this all about? I got to tell you, I believe that that was actually a heartfelt question. There's plenty of leaders that get stuck in the trap of wanting to build their own little kingdom but it also might have generated from a heart that was plateauing. Saying, I just want things to be the same. I want normalcy now. 
Scott's response demonstrated that he was unwilling to get lulled into a state of apathy. He said, I will stop pursuing the growth of the church when the last person who doesn't know Jesus Christ has walked through the doors of the church and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. That's when the work is finished. Until then, we keep leading where we are. Shall we pray?